So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be a paperback at the end of each row. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd encourage you to take that home with you as our gift to you. Uh, We've been going through a series of teachings looking towards the blessings we receive the moment we have faith in Jesus. We've entitled this series, All Things New. And and, and the the primary goal here is to move beyond just our long-term goal of eternity with God into the near term and the blessings we receive by the renewing power of the Spirit of God today that make a difference to us in practical ways in the immediate future, really in in the moments to come later in this day and and this week. So, So what are the blessings of the renewing work of God in us today? And so we've talked about God's love for us, God's adoption of us. We've talked about the hope that we get of new life and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And what I want to talk about today is something that I think is significantly lacking in the world that we live in. That we're going to talk about this idea of receiving new peace. A peace that is pervasive, that the scripture would say passes all understanding And I want you to think about the world that we live in and ask yourself, do do we see peace as a present reality? The National Institute of Mental Health says that 18% of Americans today live with some form of an anxiety disorder. Uh, That's the fastest growing of mental health concerns in America. In addition to that, the American population is one of some of the most stressed out group of people in the world. The American Psychologist Association released a study called Stress in America, where they pointed out that Americans, modern Americans, with more wealth and prosperity than almost anyone in the history of the world, have more stress-related problems than anyone else that we know of, which is interesting considering we have fewer needs on a basic physical level, but we have more anxiety and stress. In addition to that, each generation polled had increasing levels of stress than the preceding generation. So the most stressed out generation in the history of America is our 18 to 30 year olds, which is surprising if you would go back a few generations as young people were going through the Vietnam War, potentially being drafted and immediately put into a combat zone. Young people today, young adults today, and each successive generation have shown a pattern of increasing stress. When we put all of that together, the study also found the most popular coping tactics to deal with high levels of stress. So when we get stressed out, we feel anxious, what do we do? Well, these are the top six responses to stress according to the APA study. One is we watch more TV and we check out and entertain ourselves. Two is we surf the internet. Three, my personal favorite, is we take a nap. And four, there's comfort eating. Five is alcohol consumption. And six is smoking, which in most places is cigarettes, but Colorado, all bets are off. We don't know. Now, those are the normal ways of dealing with stress in our culture. If we go past just personal experiences into interpersonal relationships, we find that levels of conflict are higher than they might have seemed in the past. Particularly, I think, as the election process kicks off, although it doesn't happen for a long time for now, it's already in full swing. Conversations around politics are much more heated than they've ever been. We can't disagree without calling one another names. And America is more polarized politically than it has ever been in its history. If we go beyond our borders, we find various ongoing conflicts around the world. 
Now, we don't have fully named wars that we're examining or that we're seeing happen, but rather constant regional conflicts with ideological and tribal groups. But there's a constant flow of violence around the world. And all that's to say is that we live in a world that is in a complete shortage of peace. Peace can be defined two ways. One, as the absence of conflict which is to view it as kind of a a baseline, and then if conflict is removed, we have peace. I think the Bible points to peace as a larger idea that is not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of harmony as God has created the world to be. In either definition, we find we live in a world that is full of strife and conflict and void of peace. And so in the midst of this world of conflict, I want you to hear the promise of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 25 through 27. This is a promise that he makes to his followers. He says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So in the midst of this world of conflict, we have the promise of Jesus to offer and give peace to us. The first thing I want you to see about this peace that Jesus gives is that he contrasts it to what the world can offer. And he says, I'm going to offer you peace that the world cannot give you. So this peace that we're discussing comes from Jesus and it results in our hearts no longer being troubled and us approaching the future without fear. But it is not something that the world can give us. In fact, the world's responses to anxiety, we just noted the most popular in American culture, do not give peace. So think about it. If we have anxiety and frustration, we can go and watch more TV. We can waste time on the internet. We can take a nap. We can eat something, preferably Bluebell, and that's thrown out the window. We can have a drink. We can smoke some cigarettes. That, that's the world's most common methods of stress dealing. What you'll find is those don't actually deal with any of the issues. They're merely distractions, diversions, and entertainment. And so if I have relational conflict or financial concerns that are causing anxiety and I go watch TV and drink a few, I haven't addressed any of those issues. I have distracted myself from them for a moment, but I've done very little to address them. They're still present, I'm just pretending they aren't. I'm functionally the, the ostrich which is head in the sand, pretending the issue will go away. And ultimately, that's what the world offers us and still in, in terms of dealing with anxiety is not a means of establishing peace, but a means of distraction and diversion so that we forget about the conflict. So we surf the Internet. And no matter how many hours we watch TV, no matter how many hours... We surf the internet no matter how many extra hours we sleep, how much food we take in, how many beers we drink or cigarettes we smoke. In the end, the core problems are still present. We've just been able to pretend that they're not for a moment in time. Jesus says, I don't offer that kind of peace to you because that's not peace. That's a counterfeit. And it makes you feel okay for a moment, but the conflict, the underlying issue is still present. Jesus says, I offer peace, not the way the world gives it, but the kind of peace that will calm your troubled hearts and allow you to approach the future without fear. Now, how can Jesus offer peace that does that and the world can't? I want to lay it out to you very simply, is that Jesus can offer us something that is secure and unfading, and the world cannot offer anything that lasts. You see, the world's system of things is about acquiring and hanging on to things. 
whether it's possessions or status. It's about acquiring them. And once we have them, we don't have peace because now we have to defend them. Those of you who know me know that, that for a season of years, I worked for uh, the largest telecom company in America. And, and here's what we found. Everyone used to do business with us because they didn't have a choice, because we were the phone company. Now, things got shuffled around. People would move into a new community. The first thing they would do in years past is they would contact the phone company actually in advance of moving so that the phone would be turned on when they got there because we can't turn on everything else unless the phone is working. Then everybody gets mobile phones. We don't need that anymore. Now when people move to a new home, the first call they make is not to the telephone provider, but it's to the cable company to get their TV turned on. And the cable companies got real smart and they figured this out. They said, hey, we'll sell phone service and internet service too and then we'll bundle it on we'll make the money. And so the folks at AT&T said, wait a minute, we're losing lots of customers because when they call, they're calling and getting their TV turned on and the stinking cable company says, you want phone too. And so what did we do? Protect the base. Let's invent a TV product. They'll call us. It was all about we have something We've got to hold on to it. How do we strategize so that we hold on to it? That's how things work in the world. There's never a sense of security that's lasting in anything the world can offer. If you feel secure in the amount of money you have in the bank and the performance of your stocks, mutual funds, the 401k, what happens when things like Q4 of 2007 roll around? All of a sudden, that money evaporated. When the real estate market goes kaput and you're upside down in your home, if that's your source of security and you have peace of mind and hope for the future, confidence for the days ahead, based on that, you're in trouble. Because nothing that's given to there is ultimately something we can hang our hats on. There are things that can be taken from us. And because of that, Jesus says, the world can't give you the kind of peace I'm offering you because the kind of peace I'm offering you is something that regardless of the circumstance, your hearts don't have to be troubled. And you don't have to live in fear. So, the question for us is how do we receive this peace? And the first bit to understand that is to understand that Jesus has made peace for us. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to see the work of Jesus in establishing peace. And I want you to look for this relationship of peace that flows in two directions. One is that the peace that Jesus has made for us flows vertically towards God... And second, it flows horizontally in our relationships with other people. So Ephesians chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So I want us to begin with this and ask the question, how does this text describe us in relationship to God before the work of the cross, before our faith in Jesus? And I want you to see a few words that he's going to use. He's going to say we're separated, alienated, strangers, without hope and without God. So in our relationship to God, 
Absent the work of Jesus on the cross and our faith in him, we stand alienated and separated from him without him and without hope. If you wanted to evaluate all of that and sum it in one word, you would say that we were estranged from God. That God had created us in his image and for his glory and in our sin, we had rebelled against him. Because of that, we were distant from him. And God, being a just and righteous God, must judge our sin. So God looks upon us as sinful men and women, and he sees that we must be judged, and he is righteous. The scriptures tell us, though, that in the moment of our estrangement because of our sin, that he sent his son Jesus to die for us, and that the means of peace was the death of Jesus on the cross, where God poured out his judgment for the sin of mankind on Jesus as our representative, who paid for our sin for us, dying in our place, and that the payment was sufficient. And Jesus demonstrated that it was sufficient when he rose from the grave. And we said, it is finished there on the cross. The work was done. And peace has been made if we will believe. If we will trust him. See, many of us recognize that we're estranged from God in some way. And so our response, rather than to believe him, is to attempt the religious duty or being good enough long enough to earn our way back home. To earn our way to God. The problem with that is that it views sin wrongly and it views God wrongly. We view sin wrongly because we think it's some small thing that ultimately we could be good enough to wipe away. The scriptures don't have that view. The scriptures say that the just penalty for sin is death because our sins are not just small sins. You see, the significance of our sin is determined by the significance of the one whom we've sinned against. We use this example before. If a child lies to his mother or father, he might get time out, he might be disciplined in some way, but it's a relatively small infraction. Now, you get a little bit older and you lie and you plagiarize on a paper, you get an F, maybe you fail the class. There's an increasing consequence. You go to work and you lie to your boss, eventually you're probably going to get let go when he figures it out. However, if federal agents come to your home and you lie to them, you will go to jail for it. Now, the issue is the same. It's the same infraction. We've said something that isn't true. We've misrepresented things. We've been deceptive. The difference is the degree of respect deserved by the one that we lied to. So in our culture, we would say that federal judges, prosecutors, etc., to lie to them is obstruction of justice and you'll go to jail. We don't send Junior to jail when he lies to mom and says he brushed his teeth when he didn't. Because as parents, we want them to grow up. We want them to understand these consequences so that when it matters, they'll understand how they ought to live. But you notice this. It's the same infraction. No one gets to stand before the judge when convicted of obstruction of justice and say... Look, when I was a kid, my mom would put me in time out. Can we do that? Is that that on the table? No. We understand that. And if God is a just judge and we've sinned against the infinite God of the universe, deserving of all glory, then we would understand that that's an infinite act of rebellion. And so the appropriate judgment is an eternal separation from God in hell. That's what's on the table. And John 3.16 says it so simply, if you remember this scripture from Vacation Bible School growing up, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I want you to notice in that text there's two options. There's perishing and there's eternal life. Two options. And the difference between perishing and eternal life is very simple. It's faith in Jesus. It's not good works. It's not being a good person. We think that if we're through religious ceremony or good deeds that we can stand before the judge guilty and say, well, I helped with Habitat for Humanity. And he's going to say, well, then that's okay. No just judge would do that. 
Jesus has made payment because he endured our penalty for us and in doing so has made peace. So if we have faith in the Lord Jesus that he died for our sins and rose again, our sins are forgiven and we have peace. We've been reconciled to the Father through the blood of Christ. In addition to this vertical transformation of bringing peace, the scripture just told us that Jesus has abolished and actually killed the hostility that we have between one another. And he does it in a really interesting way. You see, there are many things in this world that would separate us, whether it's economics, tribal, affiliation, politics, you name it. There's a hundred things that keep us separated, that give us an us-them mentality. And what Jesus has done in dying for our sins and rising again is that when we believe in Jesus, we become part of one family. So the us-them thing doesn't work anymore. There's no longer us and them because we are a family. And in doing that, he's torn down the hostility because we no longer identify according to the world. We identify according to our oneness in Christ. So Jesus has made peace for us between us and God and between one another. And John 14 said this was done by the power of the Spirit. He's promising sending the Spirit. And he says, my peace I'm going to give to you. My peace I leave with you. This is the work of the Spirit of God in us. That we have been reconciled to God and one another and we've been given peace. It's a gift. Now the issue comes, we have this promise from Jesus where he says, I'm going to give you peace peace like you can't imagine, peace the world can't give. And then we fast forward to today where we don't feel peaceful. I would guess that a number of us came in today with some anxiety about something. It could be small things. We had to get the family ready for church this morning. So just real life circumstance. Yesterday at 3 o'clock, our lights go out. We are, so I go to the uh, Centerpoint website after calling it in and find out that 99.97% of their customers are in perfect working order. I'm in the 0.03%. I'm not feeling real peaceful about that. So I call it in at 3. 5.30, I get a text from them that says, your lights are on. And then I call Alicia and she says, our lights aren't on. So I call back in. They finally come on just before midnight last night. That's okay. We get through We're leaving this morning. It's Mother's Day, right? We're leaving. And for some reason, Leisha looks in the chest freezer and everything is thawed because the fuse blew on it. So now she's got to unload everything. I go in a different car. That wasn't peaceful. This morning did not look like one of those beautiful sunset scenes that are on a calendar. In fact, the reason people give you those calendars is because that's not what life looks like. So what do you do in the midst of regular life when you have this promise that Jesus has given you peace, but I don't, I don't feel peaceful? Here's, here's the net of this, is that peace is a promise that must be pursued. It's a promise, but it must be pursued. We can't receive peace passively. We must pursue it in order to take hold of it. Now, there's peace in two ways. One, we have external peace, which involves our peaceful interaction with other people in the absence of conflict, the presence of harmony relationally. In addition to that, there's inner peace, where we have a sense of confidence for the future ahead. Now, the promise in John 14 is the promise of an inner peace that no matter what we face, we have God with us and he will be for us. In addition to that, Jesus has commanded us to be peacemakers. The scriptures say that he's reconciled us to God and that he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. So having received this peaceful disposition towards God and one another is now our response to share that. 
In, John, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is preaching. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus wants us to be people who are peacemakers in our relationships. If you look to Romans chapter 12, I would encourage you to turn there with me and look at verse 14. Romans 12, verse 14 begins a really great section of instruction of how we deal with people. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So we have this commands that we're to live in harmony with one another, embracing an attitude of humility and empathy towards others. And he summarizes the whole bit in this sentence. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I, I love this, and I want to give you a couple things with this. I appreciate the way the Spirit of God led the Apostle Paul to write that. Because if he had simply said, Live peaceably with all. That's a very difficult thing to pursue. This is difficult to begin with. That's an impossible thing to pursue. Because I can be nice to someone, but I can't guarantee peace with them. Right? I can't have peace with someone who desires conflict with me. This is one of the reasons that the Middle East peace process doesn't really work, is because you have people there, and Israel's there, and there's people who, no matter what, they don't want them there, so it's hard for them to coexist. Right? It's hard to coexist with someone who desires to destroy you. So you can't just be at peace with everyone. If someone desires conflict, they're going to create conflict. What you can do, and this scripture recognizes, is that if it's possible, if the other person is willing, so far as you're responsible and able, pursue peace. Pursue it. Now, it's not going to be easy. Pursuing peace in the presence of conflict is never easy. It's difficult. That's why we're commanded to do it. And so two things to note here. One, these are commands. They're not suggestions. There's an expectation you're going to do what you're told to do. This isn't just an idea that you might want to consider. Secondly, anything that is seen as a command ought to be understood to be something we don't do innately. There's no need to command you to do something you're already doing. When we see commands, we notice right away that this doesn't come natural necessarily in our sin nature. So when I was a kid, a repetitious command in our home was, Skeet, pick up your room. Skeet, pick up your room. Mom said that a lot. And she didn't say that because she walked into my room and saw it to be pristine. She walked in and she saw that it was a mess. And so the command followed because it was necessary. We need to be reminded because this isn't innate to us, which means we're going to require the Spirit of God strengthening in us so that we can pursue peace with other people. Because in our flesh, it's easier to have conflict, let it sit there, and dodge that person. Particularly in our church, as we're growing, it is easy for people to say, oh, I have an issue with so-and-so, and I don't want to resolve it because that would be hard. So I'll, I'll go to the 11 o'clock, they go to the 9.15, we don't have to see each other. God has commanded you, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live in peace. So there's that external peace that we are to pursue, and it's hard, but we have the promise of Jesus. There's a blessing in it. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers. So in the midst of that difficulty, we lean on the promise of blessing. Beyond this external peace, we have an inner peace. The kind of peace that keeps our heart from being troubled no matter what we experience, what we go through. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, that we can have confidence 
for the future and live without fear and anxiety. Now, this is a promise again, but it's one we have to pursue. If you seek it, you will find it, but you're going to have to seek it. Now, I want you to look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 with me. This is a difficult text. And I want you to, 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 as we read it, ask yourself about the ease of obeying these commands. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So peace is available to us, but must be pursued by us. Well, how do we do that? He says, well, don't be anxious about anything. Well, that's hard. There are reasons to be anxious. There are reasons to look to the future with anxiety. We've been blessed, or to this point, our our children are 10 to 2. And so raising them, uh, there's lots of little things related to that. But the decisions that they make, for the most part, don't have kind of lasting consequences pertaining to the direction of their lives. As children move into junior high, high school, college, And some of y'all with adult children, you understand that their decisions have greater significance and weight, and you have less and less control, and so there's reason at times for anxiety. You can't just, when when they're grown, you can't just send them to their room anymore, or so they tell me. So you get anxious, and you get worried because here's something going on, and you're concerned, and you can't control it. There's reasons for anxiety, and they're legitimate, and they're real. Scripture doesn't say you're silly. It says the key to being anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. That's how you accomplish the absence of the anxiety. So we we obey being anxious about nothing when we learn to pray about everything. So when anxiety creeps in, whatever the cause is, instead of running to the world's distractions, we go to our knees in prayer and we plead with the Lord to move. And we do it with thanksgiving because we believe God to be a good and loving Father who has all might, power, and authority, and we trust Him. And so we pray with all supplication. We ask for what we need, and we do it with thankful hearts because we trust our Father is good and that He is able. He says, when you can do that, when you can pray about everything... And trust God to be God, then you can be anxious about nothing. And so we pursue peace. It is not natural to us, but it is a gift when we submit to the Lord. So we do that in prayer. In addition to that, Colossians chapter 3 would tell us that our time in the Word of God is going to influence our ability to do this. And so look at me in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, to God the Father through him. So you see this. We're going to have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. It's going to be because the word of Christ is dwelling richly in us. And that's going to overflow into thanksgiving and praise as we see God at work in us. 
But we have this inner peace available to us that is stirred up as we go to the Lord with our anxieties in prayer and as we work proactively allowing the Word of God to resonate in us so that we trust God, so that we have confidence in Him. And that confidence enables us to live each day regardless of the circumstance with the kind of peace that Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled and have no fear. That is available to every Christian. Now, we have to step back and say, this is a promise there for the enjoyment of the believer. But if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again, these promises are not yours. You can't claim them. You are not at peace with God. You have not been reconciled to him. You are distant and far from him and deserving of his judgment if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus. More than that, the promise of peace each day is not your promise. And I don't say that to say, oh, look what we have. I say that to say, seek him now. He's willing to forgive if you'll simply trust him. And at that moment that you place your faith in Jesus, that he died for your sins and rose again, the scriptures say that you will no longer perish, your sins will be forgiven, and you will now have eternal life. You'll be reconciled to the Father, you'll be reconciled to one another, and you'll have the calling and empowering from the Spirit of God to live as peacemakers. And you'll have this beautiful gift from Jesus to live a life confidently approaching the future, free from anxiety controlling you. Those are promises. And they're promises for those who believe. And so I would simply implore you to believe. It is not complex. Jesus has died for our sin, and he has risen, and he's asked that you trust him. You trust him. If you're here today and you haven't done that, I want to encourage you to simply cry out to God. Recognize that you've sinned and that you deserve his judgment and thank him for his grace through his son Jesus who died for you and rose again. If you're here today and you're a believer, I want to encourage you as you walk through difficulties in life and have constant reason for anxiety that you would present those things to the Lord in thanksgiving and allow him to unburden you because what will happen is that you will have a peace that surpasses understanding. What that practically means is that people who know you and what you go through will see this peace and it will not make sense. And that's an opportunity for you to honor Christ as you point to him as the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a good and loving God. We thank you that by the blood of your Son and his death for us, you have made peace. And that you have reconciled us to yourself through faith in Jesus. That you have broken down the walls of hostility between us and others by making us one family. Father, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to receive peace as we seek you in prayer and that receiving that and living that peace, Father, would be a testimony of your spirit's work and power, that others would be drawn to you. Father, we pray that you would make us a people who pursue peace and that we would receive the blessing of being peacemakers. And we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Amen.